Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, uh, and today we'll be on New Books in Eastern European Studies with our featured guest, Professor Leslie Waters. Leslie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So Leslie is the author of a new book, which is called Borders on the Move, Territorial Change and Ethnic Cleansing, in the Hungarian Slovak borderlands, 1939 to 1948, published by the University of Rochester Press and distributed by Boydell and Brewer, 2020. A little bit about Leslie and her bio. She is the assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at El Paso, and she received her PhD from UCLA in 2012 and is a former Fulbright fellow to both Hungary and Slovakia. Leslie has been a Mellon Postdoc Fellow of European Studies at the College of William and Mary and the recipient of the Gunzenberg Reichmann Family Fellowship for the Study of Slovakia at the Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. I'm particularly interested in her work here as a borderlands scholar. We're coming to you from El Paso and San Diego, or El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, and San Diego, um, San Isidro, Tijuana. So her work focuses really interestingly on borderlands experiences and the social and cultural impact of border changes in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, And I understand that she's also working on a second project, which will investigate the role of the 1992 Borderland Olympics in the political reorientation of Europe, recognizing new states and state boundaries, opening avenues for the integration of post-socialist states with Western Europe, and finally, adding legitimacy to the recently established European Union. So all this by way of introduction, I'm really eager to talk about this book, um, Leslie. So my first question for you is is simply about your motivation and your travels and how you wound up um, in Hungary and Slovakia and and on the and on the border. What what took you there? Well, I uh, studied in, abroad in Budapest as an undergraduate student, sort of by happenstance. My university was opening, uh, starting a brand new study abroad program there, and uh, really got interested in Hungarian history from that experience. And after I graduated from university, I worked for a year as a uh, English and history teacher in a very small town in Slovakia called Chadza, which is on the border with the Czech Republic and Poland. And it was living there that really got me interested in borderlands, just the experience of being somewhat hemmed in, not being able to go anywhere without a passport. Although, you know, the, uh, the border at that time was really friendly between those three states. 
it wasn't yet part of the Schengen zone, so you still had to go through border checkpoints. And there was a pretty interesting dynamic that developed in the region where you would go to the Czech Republic to buy food, you'd go to Poland to buy clothing, and you would go to Slovakia to buy alcohol. And the locals made this sort of round trip pretty frequently. And so it just got me thinking about the experience of living on the border. And um, of course, Hungary and Slovakia have this shared border in the south. And that's where my academic interest lied in uh, trying to understand the dynamics and ultimately the back and forth with those with the border changes that occurred between Czechoslovakia and Hungary in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, and and I wonder if we can start with a definition. So um, in the title of your book, you have Hungarian-Slovak borderlands, and I'm guessing that this is sort of Felvidek, or what what does it incorporate? How large is it? How many people were there? How do you conceive of this? And, and linguistically, of course, it, it poses a lot of challenges. So could you describe this this particular area for our, our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So it is uh, the territory that was ceded to Hungary in 1938 by the first Vienna arbitration. Hungarians refer to uh, the territory as Felvidek which can also mean the entirety of Slovakia. So it's kind of a politically charged term uh, for some Slovaks. And in the Slovak parlance, it would be referred to as Southern Slovakia. And so I use all of these terms in the book, the Hungarian Slovak borderlands, Felvidek, or re-annexed Felvidek, and Southern Slovakia. And I move back and forth between the terms based on uh, which state is controlling the territory in the moment that I'm um, referring to. So it is probably a bit unwieldy for readers at at certain times, but my thought process there was that it was unwieldy for the people who lived there too. And uh, therefore, I think it's worth, worth the effort of of moving between the terms. Yeah. And, and so if we're moving between the terms and moving between countries, what are the, the towns or the cities that it encompasses? Um, could you give us some idea of that as well, the, the toponyms and geographically? It's kind of a follow-up question, but, you know, before we go back to the period after World War One. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, it encompasses most of the large cities in southern Slovakia today. So that's Košice, um, Rimavska, Sobota, Komarno, uh, and a handful of others, Lucenets. Uh, basically, all of them, apart from Nitra and Bratislava, were given back to Hungary in 1938. So uh, Košice is by far the largest city that was returned to Hungary, the most important economically and symbolically. And a lot of the manuscript focuses on the city of Košice, Kosha in Hungarian. Okay. Yeah. So I, what is the layout of your book then? I, I see in your chapters, you, you have a, I guess I would call it a kind of episodic history, but it's it's really interesting the way that you've made your choices and lay out the five chapters. Um, 
Could you tell us what they are and then how you decided to arrange the book? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my thought, my thinking was to try and organize the book around the various border changes that occurred between 1938 and 1948. So the first chapter really talks about the immediate aftermath of the first Vienna arbitration and the uh, military occupation of Felvidek by the Hungarian army. Then uh, the second chapter revolves around March 1939 and the disintegration of uh, the rest of the Czechoslovak state occupation by Germany and uh, Hungary and the independence of the the Slovak state. Then the third chapter is about, uh, or revolves around Operation Barbarossa and Slovakia and Hungary's entry into the Second World War in um, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Then the fourth chapter revolves around German occupation of Hungary in March of 1944. And the final chapter opens with the liberation of Košice by the Soviet Red Army in early 1945. So the idea is to look at how these various occupations and border changes affected uh, the people living in the borderland and this dynamic of of changes of sovereignty and and what it meant from an everyday perspective. Yeah, and and I I like the focus that you have on the social everyday, um, I guess you would call it welfare, right? Or what is your understanding of, of the social dimension of this? Because, you know, after all, this is an extremely violent period and these, to borrow Christian Gerlach's phrase, are extremely violent societies. So um, how, how do you get into the social, the local, the everyday through your sources in these borderlands? Yeah, there's several different avenues, I would say. You know, there's, of course, this idea of everyday ethnicity from, you know, the Brubaker school of thought and how folks negotiate being parts of various nationalizing states, whether they belong to the titular nation at any given moment or not. And this comes through largely with uh, loyalty trials that the Hungarian state imposed. Right. In uh, the in 1938 1939 to try and determine who uh, would be loyal to the Hungarian state, a lot of it has to do with changes to the kind of political and economic dominance of the region. So you get like the wholesale um, firing of bureaucracies and replacement by new bureaucracies every time you have a border change. Of course, you also have the physical movement of people. And one of the things I try to do in the book is really demonstrate how changes in sovereignty lead to either ethnic cleansings or voluntary migrations out of these territories, which are sort of um, slippery in terms of Mm -hmm. who actually falls into what category. But nevertheless, every time you see a border change, you do see a significant movement of people in and out of the territory. And then finally... I argue that there's a social welfare dimension to these border changes as well as uh, whichever state is controlling the territory tries to demonstrate that 
being part of either Hungary or Czechoslovakia is in the best interest of the residents. And so there are some pretty substantial social engineering and uh, state welfare programs that come out of the border changes also for better or worse, they usually um, help certain elements of the population and uh, they hurt others. And a lot of it is based on the expropriation of uh, perceived enemy groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I want to talk a lot about this. Um, what I, I guess I would kind of call distributive justice or re- redistributive justice, which means retribution. Um, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, Leslie. And and I, I, I want you know, I I want to go through this small scale view that you show, not just the vantage from, let's say, Budapest and Bratislava, but looking looking through your early chapters, especially, I, I guess I, I would I would love to ask you what the effect of the first Vienna arbitration was. So, um. You know, in the Hordi regime and and also in the in the government of Prime Minister Bela Imredi, right? What is the immediate effect on the borderland of the first Vienna arbitration and and this recovery, if you can call it, but that's the wrong word of a greater Hungary? What does it do immediately to the population of the borderland as you study it from this social angle? Well, I would say. Most impactfully, it brings about an immediate economic crisis, you know, which people have studied in terms of the the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to to some degree. But I don't think that they've really looked at these subsequent um, repositionings of the borders. So as uh, as the Hungarian-Slovak borderlands move from the most advanced economy in Central and Eastern Europe to uh, one that is uh, at a quite lower level, you see mass unemployment, uh, you see the la- the loss of, e- of unemployment insurance and um, some basic health care, and the Hungarian state really struggles to fill in the gaps. They sort of ideologically most of the government disagrees with the idea of universal benefits. And so you see a a pretty strong reluctance on the part of um, most of the governing party to acquiesce and and, um, extend any sort of uh, welfare benefits to this region. You do see some like private or kind of hybrid organizations come in and try to provide basic foodstuffs or jobs creation programs, but it's definitely um, it's definitely a shock to uh, most people. And then the other thing is that people are cut off from their extended families, or maybe even immediate families. Sometimes their job lies on one side of the border, and their residence lies on the other. So you have all of the difficulties that come with navigating the new territorial boundary as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can can you give an example maybe for our, our listeners of some of the stories that you began collecting of of that 
I guess you would say cross-border identity or maybe even transnational identity. I'm not sure what the right category is, but but who are the people and who are the actors and, and how did you begin to stumble on those stories of, of economic geography? I actually found most of it in oral histories that have been collected of Holocaust survivors. Occasionally, I would see reference to things in the archives, but the stories really came alive when I started listening to these uh, oral testimonies. So I found a, a case of a woman whose family had acquired pretty large land holding uh, by working as intercessors during the Czechoslovak land reform. And mm-hmm. their territories ended up spanning both sides of the border. So uh, in order to tend the fields, basically, they had to cross an international boundary every day. And in 1939, when Slovakia declared independence and Hungary and Slovakia had a brief war over uh, border territories in eastern Slovakia, her her family's home was actually occupied by Hungarian gendarmes and there were battles taking place in their, um, their agricultural fields. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, very, I remember that. Right. Very much, um, an, an immediate impact, uh, in that case, you also have businesses that are actually split by the border. So, there's an interesting case of a, a brickyard that's actually owned by an Italian, uh, but the uh, it, it seems as though part of the brickyard lay in um, Slovakia, part of it lay in Hungary. And it actually became a spot for um, smuggling refugees from Slovakia into Hungary um, during 1942 when uh, the Slovak state started deportations. And uh, it was infiltrated by Hungarian uh, border patrol agents, and uh, this smuggling ring was broken up. But at least for a time, it seems to have functioned as an escape route for uh, for Jews to enter mm-hmm. Hungary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you mentioned oral history and, and oral testimony. I, I remember reading a lot of that um, in my work with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um you know, I mean, did you did you also collect things from police files? Can you give some examples of, of reading the story that way? Uh, there are these interrogation files by Czech police, right? And is that a different angle for the, the story of dispossession and expropriation that you describe in your book? Yeah, definitely. There's so many different types of police files to different agencies that are at, in play here. So you have like local police. So I looked at files of local police in, in Košice in particular. Uh, then you have this National Alien Control Office, which theoretically was uh, charged with keeping tabs on all foreigners living in Hungary. And uh, their duties expanded significantly as uh, refugee populations started to come into the state. In, uh, the late 1930s and their files are are really fascinating and then you have the gendarmerie you have interior ministry uh so there are a lot of different agencies that are um that are functioning in the borderland and they're surveilling local populations that they think might be disloyal so in particular 
they're concerned with like Slovak teachers or um, people who have kind of affiliations with Slovak nationalist parties. They're concerned with former communists and social democrats trying to weed them out and um, replace them if they have any sort of position of power with uh, with folks who are more nationalist oriented or have some links to the unified Hungarian party, which was um, the minority par- party that existed in Czechoslovakia prior to 1938. Uh, so there's a lot of different things going on. There's uh, economic dispossession, there's controlling the border and trying to prevent infiltration from outside or, or refugee movements. And then there's, uh, trying to replace people who are perceived as uh, as potentially disloyal with those who would be more supportive potentially of the nationalist Hungarian state. Yeah, and and Leslie, I wonder if you could introduce some of the names and some of the stories because I, I'm intrigued as you move into the, the middle chapters, maybe chapter two or chapter three, if I remember, um, how how you conceptualize loyalty and and the agency of people who are almost like officials that town clerks if i remember one there was this roosevelt story that that i really struck me um how people produce credentials um you know and and there's consistencies and inconsistencies in the whole national indifference idea but maybe you could tell us some of the stories that you uncovered i mean actual names of people in order to prove their nationality one way or another. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a handful. Uh, maybe the one that I like the most is uh, a guy named um, Karoy Shubik, or Dula Shubik, uh, who was a, a notary in a small village. And uh, he asks the uh, local Slovak priest for um, some sort of like verification that he's been a loyal Slovak. And then he asks a local Hungarian priest for verification that he's been a loyal Hungarian. And he's really trying to, um, you know, cover all of his bases and it doesn't work out for him. Uh, the fact that he tries to kind of game the system like this is deemed offensive to, uh, the, the people who are, uh, scrutinizing his case and trying to decide whether he should retain his position as a, as a notary. And um, in the process of his interrogation, he accuses one of the, um, one of the individuals who's on the um, loyalty commission of having sent his child to a Czechoslovak school instead of a Hungarian one, uh, which is very well could have happened and was considered a, a mark of, of serious disloyalty by some if, if you sent your child to uh, a Czechoslovak school when a Hungarian one was available. So um, he's the, the, they actually tried to um, prosecute him for crimes against the Hungarian nation, but it seems as though the uh, interior ministry didn't support their um, their efforts to prosecute him further, but he did lose his post as a notary. Mm-hmm. And and these people who work as notaries and clerks are are they fully multilingual or at least bilingual as you found them? Are are they able to to? It really depends on the village. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
it definitely seems as though not everybody spoke Czechoslovak or Czech or Slovak uh, very well, or potentially at all. If you're in a monolingual village in in Hungary or in in so- southern Slovakia, Felvidek, um, theoretically, if there was over, I believe, twenty percent of the population was Hungarian speaking, then they had to offer any government services in both Hungarian and Slovak. And um, that's one way that, you know, somebody like a notary might, might potentially be monolingual in some of these areas. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's such a curious question. I mean, I, you know, when I teach about 1939, it's a cliche, but the idea that a person is comprised of mind, body, and passport um, or soul, body, and passport in, in some cases for, um, for a lot of these people, especially um, after the anti-Semitic laws are implemented. Um, I, I wonder, Leslie, if I can ask if you have a, a kind of master narrative as you, as you go toward the second Vienna arbitration. So the book poses such a challenge because you, you can't really tell the story in a national homogenizing, nationalizing way. So how, how do you seek out other variables or, or let's say other prisms to tell the story into the second Vienna arbitration period. And then ultimately we'll talk about the final solution. Yeah. I suppose that focusing on, on um, the movement of individuals is one way that I try to do this. So every time you have a border change in central and Eastern Europe, you have some sort of migration stream. And sometimes these people are just passing through Hungary on their way somewhere else um, sometimes they're looking for refuge there, but there's these new categories of statelessness that that come up uh, once you know you have a territory that's that's fully incorporated into the German Empire. Uh, you have sometimes these impromptu expulsions or population exchanges. So one of the ways I tried to get around the kind of inevitable nationalizing narratives was to focus on uh, on people's movement instead and um, how they how they navigate the borders that are changing around them. Hmm. So, can you give an example of that instead of the vantage from the state or you know these as you call them ethnic engineering fantasies? I think that's perfectly apt, right? Where you know you have maps, obviously, of Greater Slovakia or, or Greater Hungary. Um, the smuggling that intrigues you? Is it mobility that intrigues you? And, and I mean, how do you get into those stories? Exactly? Yeah, I suppose what intrigues me in part is that obviously these new borders are an imposition in some way. Uh, you know, you lose your job, you are cut off from your family members, but that also opens up new opportunities. Uh, and so I say that a lot of the folks that live in the borderland lived transnational yet local lives uh, because they did have uh, pretty extensive networks often on both sides of this new international boundary. And uh, what it means is that they can often traverse this boundary, which isn't terribly well demarcated in in certain areas. They can traverse it for their benefit either. uh, You know, so I found some examples of people who, are um, trying to avoid conscription. And so they'll move from, say, Kasha, they'll move to, from Kasha to Preshov 
because they don't want to serve in the Hungarian army uh, and vice versa. I have cases of, of Slovaks who or of, um, of people who are trying to avoid conscription into the Slovak army. And then they uh, come into uh, the borderland area on, on the Hungarian side in order to do that as well. And then of course, once you have um, deportations starting in um, 1942 in Slovakia, 1944, mainly in Hungary, uh, you also have Jews trying to escape deportation by traversing the border. And they often have family members on the other side that they can rely upon to help them or acquaintances. Uh, so these these local but transnational social networks become very important. Yeah, and that's that's really my next question moving into your, your third and fourth chapters about both Hungarian um, and Slovak Jews who are relying on these networks. And, you know, I mean, interestingly for us, I, I guess us, if we're Americans um, studying under East European or Central East European emigres like, you know, Ivan Berend or Istvan Deak, they, these are the stories that they have. Many of them, they've shared them with us. And Berend becomes a, you know, a character even in your story toward the end. But I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by how you, get into the world of family networks and kinship networks. And, you know, it, it becomes a world um, of, of forgeries where you absolutely need marriage certificates and ancestral um, proofs and baptismal certificates and other kinds of documents. So um, I, I wonder if you could tell our listeners about some of those cases that, that you get into through, um, through 1941 and nineteen forty and so forth. What did you find? Yeah. Uh, one of the best sources that I found was a, a memoir written by a local attorney in, in Kasha named um, Mikulash or, or Miklos Gashko. And uh, he facilitated a bunch of different uh, escape attempts from uh, Slovakia into Hungary. So he helped out uh, local Jewish families who were trying to get family members into Hungary, or he held money for them, all kinds of things. Uh, so sources like that were really, really helpful. People's personal uh, reminiscences about this period and, and sorts of risks that they took. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Ivan Berend. Uh, you know, he was my ad advisor at, at UCLA and, um, you know, I just remember conversations with him that would go something like, oh, you know, Professor Berend, I'm, I'm going to Komarom. And he would say, oh, that's interesting. I was in Komarom once. I was held in the um, police station and then I was interned in a, in a concentration camp. <laughs> and, you know, that's sort of very nonchalant the way he would, he would tell these stories. Um, and so I wanted to put him in there. And sure enough, uh, he did travel through this uh, borderland territory uh, while he was uh, conscripted into the um, forced labor battalions by the Hungarian state. And uh, that sort of plays into one of my arguments about um, Jewish persecution in the borderland, which is that a lot of the kind of institutional knowledge that the Hungarian state used to um, identify dispossess and then ultimately deport Jews was honed in the borderlands 
uh, either by trying to track down these refugees who'd come in um, from Slovakia after 1942, or even earlier movements after uh, the various border changes that occurred in 1938 and 1939. And then you can add in on top of that the fact that a lot of the infrastructure that the Hungarian state used was located in the borderlands. So Kosha became the main uh, deportation point for Hungarian Jews on their way to Auschwitz. You know, almost 400,000 people, I believe, traveled through the city. On, and that was sort of their um, point of departure from Hung- the Hungarian state and the moment where uh, Hungarian forces gave over the, the deportation trains to, to the SS. And then in the West... Uh, Komarom served a, a similar function as a deportation point for um, people who were being uh, driven west into uh, camps in, in Germany in the late in the late stages of the Second World War. Yeah, and and you use the word Leslie blueprint. I, I caught that a couple of times in the text. Um, I'm intrigued by this, and, and and wonder if you could explain it because. You know, you're covering Kasha, which is a transit point for for these 400 or 430,000 Hungarian Jews who who end up going to Auschwitz. So, I mean, how do you see this sort of trial period of, I don't know, again, if that's the right way to explain it, but there seems to be almost like a a trial to to see if ethnic cleansing works. Um, So, I mean, how do you read back, let's say, from 1944? into the earlier stages of, of this? Well, I think there's kind of two elements to it. Part of it is this just experience of tracking down um, non-citizen Jews, and uh, many of whom were deported in 1941 to Galicia and part of this Kamenets Podolsk massacre, one of the... Uh, Lar- largest massacres that occurred in, in uh, 1941. So you get this sort of institutional knowledge in terms of um, state actors working to identify uh, Jewish refugees. But then I also think that there's a lot of interplay between the Slovak and Hungarian states, and they're copying one another. They're copying one another's laws, anti-Semitic leg- legislations. They're copying one another's patterns of um, deportation strategies for paying for deportation, dispossession, uh, you know, what, how they Aryanize businesses, all they're really closely paying attention to one another. And uh, the borderland is, of course, the place where this is most evident. And, you know, in terms of internationalizing a history of the Holocaust, which, you know, I still think mostly is told along national lines, the amount of, of um, of interplay between the states really needs to be highlighted more than it is. Right. Um, and, and what are you, what would you say are you adding to the literature like, like Holly Case's book? Um, I mean, what in your vantage, let's say, especially in covering social history and social welfare. And I mean, the many, many rich case studies that you have, I, I'm, I, I'm just so impressed reading this. Um, you know, I, you're almost like a case investigator and, and, so I, I find that angle really interesting, and I wondered if you could talk a little about the between states historiography, if we can. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I really, the arguments that um, 
that Hungarian Holocaust scholars have made about the importance of Jewish wealth and this idea of uh, pursuing social justice, if you will, by dispossessing Jews and redistributing their wealth to Hungarians. Uh, this is something that I see really clearly in the borderlands and discussed openly well before 1944. And it also has a really parallel, a, a very closely paralleled discourse in Slovakia. This idea of national wealth having, having been stolen uh, by Jews and that this is that what the states are doing to them is is a matter of justice and that this wealth rightfully belongs to the Hungarian people or the Slovak people and uh, it's going to bring about some sort of national renaissance uh, for these for these two um, nations if they dispossess other uh, Jewish citizens and do you, do you see that language of justice? amplified at a particular moment in time in the Slovak state? Because, you know, after all, like from Paul Hanabrink's work or, or from the work in the 1920s, the, the discourse and the language of justice for Hungary is older, right? So what exactly happens in the political language, um, especially when the Aryanization policies are, are executed, stripping Jews of their citizenship? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tied up with uh, the idea of revisionism. And where I I see the discourse actually happen the most is in these moments of border changes or uncertainty. And one of the points that I saw over and over was that simply border changes weren't enough, that there needed to be like serious rectification of the wrongs that had been committed against the Hungarians of Felvidek allegedly during um, Czechoslovak rule. So mm-hmm. they wanted um, they wanted business licenses. They wanted to punish Jews who seemingly had benefited from a good relationship with the Czechoslovak state. And um, this idea that simply coming back into Hungary wasn't sufficient and that the state right. needed to take right. serious measures to, to improve That's their lives. Point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a that's a great point. Um, I, I think that's that's extremely important. And you know, I mean, I, I I'd love you to talk about the, the chapter um, really after this happens. But I mean, the, let's talk about the two uh, chapters for the end: um, the Holocaust in the borderland, and then ultimately the return to Czechoslovakia. So, um, really, my question is is about the memory of. 1944, um, and a lot of the work about the Holocaust in Hungary. So how do you read then 1944 in in light of the persistence of this discourse? Because I I think one of the imaginative things about your book is the continuous narrative. You you don't stop in 1944. You don't stop with the final solution. You're actually taking this well into the the, um, communist Czechoslovak state. Yeah, uh, so I would. There's a couple of things that come to mind with that. It's interesting to me. It perhaps it's you know somewhat coincidental, but nevertheless extremely important that the uh, individual who became the Interior Minister of Hungary in 1944 was Andor Jaros, who was one of the leading politicians of the Hungarian minority in Czechoslovakia, 
And he's one of the people who really pushes most aggressively this idea of um, universalizing social welfare and expanding social welfare and doing it with Jewish capital. Mm-hmm. And he is put in a position in which he can implement some of his plans. And so what started out around the time of the border changes in 1938 comes sort of full circle, or, or it's able to culminate in 1944 uh, when these deportations uh, happen and the Hungarian state decides to collaborate with the Germans to, to deport the Jewish population of the state. So that's really significant, I think. And that's, you know, one of the places that you see a continuity. And then once the territory comes back into uh, Czechoslovakia, of course, you still see that idea of uh, justice needed, needing to be meted out. And in this case, justice looks like uh, punishing the national minorities who allegedly betrayed the state in 1938 and 1939. Right. Um, and, and what is the special role, the, the special role of the Czechoslovak uh, committee, right? Because they're, I don't remember exactly when, but they're sent into Hungary and they're presiding over the population exchange right on through. And, and it's another act of, you know, cartography. They have these district offices. Um, there's like 20 of them or settlement offices and so forth. So, I mean, can you give us an idea as, as you go through the latter stages of your book, what, what kind of things you found about this uh, new geography, I guess, uh, through the, the Czechoslovak-Hungarian um, population exchanges? So the Czechoslovak state government after the Second World War tried to explicitly equate the German minority and the Hungarian minority in the hopes that they would be able to expel in total the Hungarian population of Southern Slovakia. They didn't get the international support they needed to pull that off, but they did manage to agree to a a population exchange between Hungary and Slovakia for Slovaks that lived uh, in in the Hungarian state for Hungarians in um, Southern Slovakia. And this was in theory a one-for-one exchange it was based on uh, if they could convince a Slovak to volunteer to uh, move to Czechoslovakia, then for each Slovak that they could convince to volunteer, they could remove a Hungarian. And so uh, they send out, the Czechoslovak state sends out these committees to various places in Hungary that have Slovak populations and tries to convince people um, to move into um, into southern Slovakia. They promised them land, they promised them good industrial jobs, various things. And so it's a it's a pretty interesting conundrum, I think, for these mostly agricultural people who are asked to give up the knowledge that they have about the land, asked to give up the certainty, but perhaps, you know, precarity of living in Hungary uh, in exchange for the unknown, uh, but living in a victor state living in a state that has a more advanced economy and potentially has more opportunities. Yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, please. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of a lot of Zionist historiography, you know, and understanding these colonial settlement projects as, as appropriative. And, 
do you see the a kind of targeting going on with the um, with this particular moment? I mean, it's such an important moment in Czech or Czech-Slovak-Hungarian relations from 1944 to 1948. It's definitely part of this larger international pattern, you know, uh, and under Stalinist ideas about ethnically homogenous territories, whether they're mm-hmm. um, statewide or, or regional. And so I definitely see it as part of that larger phenomenon where millions of people are on the move throughout Central and Eastern Europe. And, and you're right, even beyond with, uh, mm-hmm. with Zionism. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want you to talk about Hungarian studies and Hungarian scholarship. So, um, I, you know, I see this as a, as a contribution to a lot of the literature on ethnic cleansing. And, uh, you know, I understand that you're now um, one of the associate editors with Hungarian Studies Review, which is which is a great journal. So, um, could you talk about this maybe in a in a European context for um, Czech Hungarian Slovak Hungarian um, relations, and and maybe this whole big question of national self determination? I'm dying to ask you big questions about the 20th century because it's a deep, deep study. Um, but but now I, I, I want to pose the big 20th century question. So how, how is this a rereading of Hungarian history and, and let's say the history of national self-determination? Well, I, I suppose it in some ways demonstrates that you can't really do Hungarian history without taking into consideration all the states around them and uh, the relationships that they had with those states. Uh, It's also very interesting to me just how little this story is told. So there is a decent amount of literature on um, Hungarian prisoners of war or or people who were deported to the Soviet Union um, as forced laborers after World War II. Um, But there's quite quite a bit less on this um, population exchange. And what does exist is really, you know, a pretty basic victimization narrative. And uh, I find it fascinating that you have no collective identity of, uh, of these Felvide Hungarians who have moved into Hungary in mass, you know, hundred thousand of them in 1946, 47. And you also have no significant collective identity of the Slovaks who move into Southern Slovakia at the same time. And, you know, if you compare this to uh, what happens in West Germany among the Volksdeutsche, I think it's it's quite striking that you don't have these senses of collective I- identities form. And uh, there's no no such thing as an organization really for Felvide Hungarians um, in the 40s and 50s, for example. So so would it, would it be, Leslie, I mean, if you could measure this in comparison with, say, the Carpatho-Rusins or... Um, you know, Transylvanians and, and so forth. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it a weakness? Is it a strength? Is it, um, I mean, how do you read this both as a sort of diaspora transnationalism and of course, a history of the 20th century with nationalizing regimes? Can you, can you explain that? Why there's no, you know, archive or, or main institute? I wish I had a good explanation. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that 
I do. I, there's probably several things at play. I, I just think that the massive movement of, of Germans out of Czechoslovakia was so significant. And the fact that Czechoslovak history is so often told through a Czech lens and not a Slovak lens means that the you know overwhelming majority of the stories that are told are about this sort of Czech-German rivalry and uh, the symbolic importance of Transylvania in the Hungarian and Romanian national imaginatives seems yeah. much stronger than Felvidake. Um, yeah. And I, I think it also may have something to do with the social positioning of, of people in these regions. You know, you have these very wealthy Transylvanian lords uh, who have right, a lot of right. people <laughs> Teleki, as I know. <laughs> right, okay, right, exactly. And they don't necessarily exist in the same uh, in the same realm as, as, uh, yeah. In, in Falvidek. And then there's also the fact that it, there was definitely like somewhat of a suspicion between, uh, the Hungarian state and the people who came in, uh, to the state in 1938, you know, they were, lived in this Czechoslovak democracy. Um, they had, they were well represented among the communist and social democratic parties, which of course had been completely decimated in Hungary uh, itself. And so they're seen as uh, ideologically problematic. And so, you know, perhaps it has something to do with that as well. They just don't fit nicely into some sort of narrative in which the Hungarian state saves the day. Yeah. And I, I would even point to things like name changes. Did, did you find a lot of that or, or, you know, sort of the assimilative, um, surname changes? Were, were people switching in that manner? Definitely. Uh, you, people have written about the de- the demographics of Košice quite extensively and the fact that you have, you know, these massive swings between, you know, the city being 60% Hungarian and then 10 years later it's 70% Slovak and back and forth and back and forth. And then you had this mass Slovakization after World War II, in which um, people really yeah. extensively changed their uh, surnames and things like that. But as soon as things normalized a bit, many of yeah. them sort of re-identified as Hungarian later. So you definitely yeah. see the same person change their the way that they talk about themselves and the way they refer to themselves, at least in official documents, really frequently. Yeah, it, it's a great tension too that you capture between this mobility and malleability, and and yet in many ways the persistence of multi generational narratives and identities that that get passed on orally through many generations. Um, I wanted to ask you, Leslie, since we're winding down with our time, a, really a two part question from um, from your wonderful book, and and that is um, first, if you can recommend others. Uh, on the topic who have written. Our listeners, I think, at New Books would, would love to hear that. And then maybe to say a few words about your current uh, book projects and, and research that you're working on right now. I would say, uh, you know, in terms of scholars that are working in the region, I always try and keep up with what Gabor Egri is doing and what um, Hanna Kubatova is working on. And uh, for scholars that are U.S.-based, I'm really looking forward to Pamela Ballinger's book on uh, refugees in uh, Italy. 
and um, Catherine Ciancia's book on the on Volhynia on the Polish borderlands. Um, yeah. So you know, I'll, not I'll on Hungary per se, but but <laughs> right. definitely on the thematic level. Cool. And uh, in terms of my next project, it's going to be on the 1992 uh, Barcelona Olympics and uh, this reimagining of Europe that happens around that uh, same moment in time. So I'm intrigued by the fact that you have all of these new state formations that, and new national Olympic committees that form right in this moment. So uh, new states that have never competed on the international level before, and they're using uh, the Olympic movement as a way to garner political legitimacy. So thinking about places like Slovenia or uh, Croatia, for example, uh, but it's also, of course, the year that the European Union was officially founded. And I think it's no coincidence that Barcelona, you know, this yeah. cosmopolitan place that's not uh, a national capital is mm-hmm. chosen. It's very, um, it's very timely uh, for the narrative about what the, EU's, what the EU is and what it stands for. And I, I'm also interested in the way that these uh, former Eastern Bloc athletes who had such a privileged position in society and, and were so successful in many cases in international competitions, how they navigate this new liberal capitalist system that they find themselves in. And, uh, you know, they're competing for uh, endorsements and right. they have to right. fund their own way to the Olympics in lots of cases. And, it just seems like there are some uh, really excellent stories out there that I'm eager to investigate. And and you have so many languages, Leslie. What what languages would you use for that project? Uh, <laughs> Spanish, <laughs> obviously. Spanish, right? <laughs> uh, yes. uh, Spanish English, uh, Hungarian, perhaps Slovak. Uh, yeah. German, I, maybe. I, you know, there's definitely stuff in Russian that I'm sure is really interesting. Yeah, could maybe labor through some of it. Um, that's I, that sounds like a great project on the history of the '90s too. The, you know, now we're at the turning point, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of exciting stuff, and I don't think we uh, have really a very good grasp on how things happened in Central and Eastern Europe in that time. I think, you know, there was stuff that came out at that moment, but I don't know that we've had good histories done yet. So I, I think it's time. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, um, listen, I for all of our listeners here at New Books Network, uh, I want to thank Professor Leslie Waters uh, from the University of Texas, El Paso, for joining us. Leslie is the author of a brand new book. This is called Borders on the Move, Territorial Change and Ethnic Cleansing in the Hungarian-Slovak Borderlands, 1938 to 1948, just out in 2020, published by the University of Rochester Press and Boydell and Brewer. Thanks so much. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Thank you, Leslie, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.